One of the things I love most about doing this is it allows me to re-examine a lot of things and reanalyze my own feelings about something that I have been very passionate about for a huge portion of my life, right? You know, I've considered myself a trekker, and then a trekkie, and then a trekster, and then a trekkerographer for well, the better part of uh, 33 years at this point. <clears throat> and I was expecting to walk into this episode basically praising it except for the ending. This episode doesn't hold up as well as I thought it would. Oh, don't mistake me, there's some good stuff here. But you can kind of start to see where the seams show. See, this was a... This was thrown together by a bunch of people, actually. Uh, in fact, a total of four people had their fingers in the pot of the writing staff, so to speak, on this one. And they also workshopped this one a bit. So, there's four people we know of that were involved in the writing staff. Now... This, uh, let's just jump right into it, shall we? It is probably worth noting that Ronald D. Moore was the main writer on this one, and I want to point that out because it shows. Moore is good at character vehicles. He's good at really pulling interactions between people. That, that's one of his best talents, in my opinion. He's also good at Klingons in general. Most of my favorite Klingon episodes have been coming from Moore. And a lot of what I talk about with regards to honor and fake honor and the nature of Klingon culture all comes from episodes that he headlined. So so we've got this episode. LaForge <laughs> can cheat at cards. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. He only does it until after. Sorry. But what I really want to talk about is the barrels aren't secured. Now, that's actually really important. You remember just last episode? Maybe you don't. I just mentioned the whole nitpicking discussion. The problem is, it's easy to dismiss a nitpick that's just, oh no, they screwed up which turbo if they're supposed to exit. Or, oh my goodness, they had a mix-up on which field or whatever. You know, let, me, let me just pull up this episode really quick. Let's see what we got here. Um, let's see here. Ah, here we go. They actually mentioned gloves for the, re uh, for the surgery for when Morph goes in, and yet in a previous episode, uh, Crusher actually mentions that they don't use that anymore because they have fields to sanitize the area. So that's a minor nitpick, right? That's the kind of thing that would be preferable to not be there, but it doesn't really affect anything. Then you have a nitpick like, the Enterprise-D, in a large cargo room, which is apparently having issues, has large barrels completely unsecured. What is this, an Amazon warehouse? I'm sorry, that's mean. But you get it? Like, that's amazingly not a good idea in virtually any circumstance here on Earth. This is the Enterprise, a starship in general, which tended to go semi-frequently, right? And I bring this up because it is the crux of the entire episode. Everything happens because of that unsecured container. Now, what I find doubly funny about this is they show us... They do a little bit of a camera trick. Chalmers is the one who is directing this one. And he, he, he pulls several things in, in there. To good effect, actually. He, he pulls the camera over so we see there's something wrong with it. And we see it start to kind of melt in on itself. And then it collides onto him. It would have been a very minor alteration. It would have cost a little more money. I'll admit it. But it would have been a very minor alteration to have their, you know, that whatever is going wrong that they're, they're scanning for go and send the thing flying off the strap 
or something. You know, there's something that is keeping those barrels strapped in, breaks off, and the barrel comes off and then hits him. And I know that's such a minor thing. But to be completely blunt, that's the difference between great and good. Something great would pay attention to such small details, whereas something good is something where you have to just kind of skip over it. So, <clears throat> one of the things I really like about Gates McFadden's, Gates McFadden's acting is she knows how to use her face. She's... My favorite example of this, there's actually two, but my favorite example is right at the beginning where it, we're still in the cold open. Worf's there lying down. He says, there's no need for this restraint, Doctor. And she starts, she has this vague, fake smile on her face, the comforting smile, right? If you've ever been in a medical anything, you probably know what I mean by the comforting smile. And as she kind of tells him about it, the smile just fades and fades and fades. It takes like three full sentences before it's gone completely. And then when she realizes she has to tell him the final bit, she manages to pull the smile back up in order to inform him, yeah, no, you're screwed. It's a nice little touch. Just little stuff like that. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to not give my opinions on this episode, regardless of quality. I mean, I could, I've already given my opinion of quality. I think it hasn't held up at well. But what I mean by that is this is a topic episode. This episode covers experimental medicine. This episode covers tolerance of other people's cultures. And this episode covers suicide. And I don't want to talk about any of those things. I don't see a controversial box around here, and frankly, I don't think I want to bring it down. But I do want to talk about a few things. First and foremost, Dr. Russell is probably the weakest part of this episode for me. Not the worst, just the weakest. I mentioned earlier how the episode doesn't hold up all that well. There are some very good character interactions, but the so-called ethical dilemma between Crusher and Russell falls completely flat for me. I actually have this thing up here right now. Michael Piller, um, and I quote, we went out of our way, hang on, I guess, we went out of our way to not make it easy for the audience to know what the right thing to do was. I think we succeeded pretty well with that one. We wanted to explore the issue, and it's only fair to explore it if you give both voices the equal fairness that their voice and opinions deliver. Okay? Cool. I don't agree. <laughs> I, I don't. The problem is the way Russell is both written and presented is she doesn't have a strong thing going for her. Her basic point is we need to make big risks and we need to try experimental new things in the hopes of possibly developing new treatments. She's not online with anything. She pro may or may not care about the people she's healing. We don't really get to see enough of her to really judge that one. Although I will point out that several times, the first thing she really seems to care about is her research. We have a real chance to save his life. And advanced research, that you know, it's something that comes up a lot, is she tends to care more about the research than the results. Now, that's, of course, just her. And we could still say, I mean, Voyager tackled this exact same topic, actually, um, in a completely different manner. They were talking about... I can't remember the term, but dirty research, basically, you know, sullied data. Now, and that was actually a fascinating episode, an episode I actually enjoyed surprisingly a lot. And I have gotten a huge amount of comments over the years since I did my rumination on that episode of people who firmly agreed with one side or the other. And I have seen that variety of opinion, and that's awesome, because that's what we should be getting. 
I have never heard anyone defend Dr. Russell in this one. Now I know I'm going to get someone doing that now that I said that. I opened up the gate. But I'm, I'm being serious. In all the years I've discussed this show with friends and family and strangers on the internet or in person at conventions or just kids at the, the school ground, you know, people at the workplace, I've been discussing Star Trek for a long time, since the 90s. And no one has ever defended Dr. Russell. And I think the reason why is because of her presentation. She comes across as a twat. Someone who just is head in the clouds, who is incredibly irresponsible and reckless, and who is, isn't actually thinking of the big picture so much as the big name on the research paper kind of a thing. So she's self-interested, and she doesn't have something concrete she's pushing for. Now that's important, both of those points, I think. Because from a personal level, if she was someone who cared more about her patients, who was driven to save lives no matter the cost, she would be more understandable and she would be more relatable at a personal level. And on a professional level, if she was more results-driven, if she was pushing for making new strides no matter the cost, then she would be more relatable on a professional level or more understandable there. You know, in that, in that case, it's more of a case of pragmatism. But this is a quack who barely knows what she's doing, and it shows at every level. And that's why I feel that she is a weak link of this episode. And in fact, I frankly don't even have much else to say about her. I do have a couple specific notes I jotted down. For example, we have a 37% success rate on holograms. 37% on a holodeck. That's a completely controlled environment, if you don't understand the significance of that. And under those circumstances, you know what, not too recently, not, not too unrecently, not too long ago, I played a game for the PS4, it's called Judgment, uh, or Project Judge if you're in Japan, and one of the major plot points of that is a drug that they want to streamline clinical trials for. Now, one of the things I praised that game for was that it did a good job of presenting how long of a period of time, how many years upon years new drugs have to spend time and effort and work and res results upon results upon results to finally get to the point where they could get to clinical trials and then more years of work in order for them to actually go live. Like, that's pretty normal, you know? And that's how it's been for many years now here in real life in multiple countries, too. I bring this up because this is the frickin' Federation. You can't tell me they don't have something similar. I mean, it's probably sped up a little bit because they have more advanced medical technology than we do by a huge margin. But you can't tell me they don't have some similar procedure. Now, this is also important because she mentions that she's only been doing stuff on holograms, but she really wants to move forward to human trials. That is the real-life equivalent of testing on mice and then saying, we're good for human trials. No. <laughs> that doesn't work that way, in any sense. Now, at first I thought the episode was just being badly constructed, you know, badly written. But then later on they make it a point of saying that Starfleet has actively rejected her desire to go ahead and shift to human trials multiple times. What this portrays is someone who is not willing to wait the years in order to go through the proper procedure to eventually get to clinical trials and then start proper human testing, or in this case, you know, humanoid testing. Now, I bring that up because that means the episode is not poorly written. It is, in fact, well written, and she's just a horrible person. 
which also consequently makes the episode not that well written. <laughs> or at least not in the direction that they stated they wanted to. Now, granted, that was Pillar, not Moore, who said that. Um, so make of that what you will. It's worth noting Moore actually does have comments on this as well. I've heard a lot of criticism on the show, feedback of people who thought we were advocating euthanasia, people thought we were saying bad things about the disabled and the value of disability, people think that Dr. Russell was absolutely wrong, and how dare Beverly get in the way of Worf's right to die, and blah, blah, blah. And Moore himself has commented on this episode, mostly in a derogatory fashion. I don't know if I'm being too harsh on this point, but I think it's worth... I, I'm banging on about this so much because it's about half the episode. And so for about half the episode, I was just like... Because it's just the bad guy versus the good guy, right? Now, having said all that, let's get to the other half of the episode, which I think works much better. And that's the episode about Worf. Not the medical crap. I know that sounds strange, but hear me out. There's several axes related to Worf. There's Worf to Alexander, Worf to Troy, Worf to Riker. And then, kind of indirectly, but beautifully done, Worf to Picard. You'll notice there's no Worf and Picard scene. Worf has a one-on-one -on -one with every other character I just mentioned, and Crusher, obviously, and a couple others. But he never has a one-on-one -on -one with Picard. By contrast, however, Picard doesn't need one. Remember, this is post-redemption. This is the Picard who, at this point, gets Klingons. And it shows. In fact, I found this hysterical. I looked up the name of the episode, Sons of Moog, over in DS9, which we've already covered by this point. In Sons of Moog, Sisko blew up at Worf for being willing to help with this exact same ritual with Kern. In this episode, Picard, who gets Klingons a lot more is basically Worf's only advocate in this whole thing. And he does it wonderfully. And it's part of why this episode succeeds for me. Because the Worf side of things is an appropriately gray situation, and it is portrayed appropriately as if both sides have valid points. Probably the one and only thing that happened that actually pissed me off was a comment Crusher made, which I'll get to in a minute. So, first of all, War Riker comes in, and there's, let me just say, there's actually some really great camaraderie between Riker and Worf. It makes me wish we got more Riker and Worf in the show in general. Because Frakes and Dorn just kind of gelled. Also, Riker is immediately horrified when he realizes what he's being asked to do. And, and basically just bows out like, nope, I can't deal with that. Now, what I like best about that is it's portrayed not just as his own disgust at the idea, but his inability to emotionally cope with it. Regardless of your personal opinions or beliefs, even if you decided to completely agree, even if, if your best friend, or whatever, your good friend, walked up to you and said, please help me die, my life is over, right? And you agreed with them fully, that is still something that's hard to emotionally cope with. And Riker does a good, excuse me, Frakes does a good job of showing how much Riker is having trouble processing that. So, of course, he naturally hides behind his human sensibilities. No, suicide is bad. Then he has a talk with Picard about it. And this is where Picard starts to enter into the equation. Because it is Picard who talks to Worf about this. And he doesn't say you should do this. He just kind of shows Worf's point here. You know, one of the biggest points that both Riker and Crusher keep making on the pro-live side is being disabled does not mean your life is over. And yet it is Picard who points out that from Worf's particular philosophy... That's not really true. In summary, 
Worf's side could be, could be structured with a very simple sentence that I myself love to say on a regular basis. Survival is insufficient. In short, for Worf, going through life with barely cap capable of functioning or not being able to function would not be living. And it's easy to understand why for someone like Worf. Well, not just because he's athletic and likes to hang out on the holodeck, because he defines himself by his ability to do, his duty, his responsibility, his task, his, and he expresses that almost universally through combat and through his training and trials and all that he does. If he suddenly lacked the ability to literally stand tall, that would be horribly deleterious to him. Now, that being stated, it is worth noting that he does probably give up a little bit too easily on the other fix, the fix that might partially restore him. And yet, when he rages about it, his points are valid, not emotional. I do not wish to be a lumbering oaf who is incapable of properly functioning, is the main thrust of his argument. And that is very worth. Now, you could say whether or not that is his right to decide. Like I said, I'm trying very hard to not give my opinion on all these points. I'm just trying to show how the episode itself presents them. Because I think it does a good job of presenting everything except the medical side of things pretty well. Funnily enough, Moore himself complained about this. And, and I quote, the medical stuff is not what I'm drawn to, and it's hard to make it interesting. That's a direct quote from Moore there. Anyways, so that's... Uh, then we have... Another interesting little tidbit, you know, we find out that medical science on the Klingons, despite years upon years of being close allies with the Klingons, is not that advanced, mostly because the Klingons just don't do that. They have a little bit of a Darwinian kind of a thing going on, and uh, there are disadvantages to that, as we are seeing. This is also not the only time that comes up, consequently. Now, Worf... I just want to say one thing really quick. I've been in a wheelchair uh, before, and I have been stuck on crutches for some months after that. And actually, to this very day, no joke, I still have my crutches right over there. You can't see them, obviously, because I'm not swiveling the camera that way. That would be pointless. But they're right over there just in case, because every now and again, it's, it's like once in a blue moon, I still just lose control of my left leg completely. And I need my crutches to get around for a little bit. It's happened on stream, even. And I bring that up because I know what that feels like. And I know what it feels like to be someone who can walk around normally. And I can kind of see both perspectives in a very minor, you know, peeking in the window kind of a way. And I bring that up because I do, I do think it is probably more upon the person making the choice. That is to say, it is more the person who would be crippled to decide it rather than the person who is not, if you follow me. And that is one of the big thrusts of Picard's argument, that this should be Worf's capacity to choose. He has a wonderful scene with Crusher, where he expertly navigates around her, and she, basically, he, out, he outflanks her completely, in a diplomatic sense. She resorts to an extreme. She flat out says, I will not let him commit suicide. I will keep him in watch, and I will, you know, I will have him stuck in my med sick bay, and I'll have him there for a year if I have to. How many of you know what suicide watch is like in real life? You don't have to answer. Just answer up here. That's all I need. Anybody who says the answer yes to that question, you know how horrible suicide watch actually is. 
it's very dehumanizing and very impersonal. And I have never known a circumstance that I'm aware of personally where it has helped situations. Rather, 100% of the time, it has made things worse. And that's exactly what I was thinking of when I heard Crusher say that. Now, that kind of helps just demonstrate the point. Crusher is arguing from emotion. And ironically, so is Picard, just in a different direction. Crusher is refusing to let go of a friend, and Picard is refusing to let a friend go, if you understand the distinction. There's then a wonderful scene, which actually should have been even better than it was, where Riker comes in, and Worf is like, hey, you've brought the dagger, I am prepared. And Riker just lays it out. And what I like about this scene more than anything else is that they disagree. Now, this is going to sound like a strange thing, but that is actually by far my favorite part of this episode. If I had to pick out a singular thing, it would be the fact that so many people disagree with each other. That's awesome. Honestly, I feel like we need more of that in Star Trek. I know that sounds like a strange statement. But far too often, the crew are all basically on the same side on any given issue. Here they were allowed to disagree with each other without it going too far, without it getting into melodrama, without the need for, you know, actual violence or anything. Just people being people, like you do. That being said, I have this book open on my desk for a reason, not just to quote more in Pillar, but I want to quote one of the original bits of the script. There's a bit where Riker says, do you remember all the people that died in the line of duty? At least they died trying. Here you are lying in your hospital bed. Then he circles around the bed and yells nose to nose with Worf, literally yelling, why don't you just get off your ass and take the challenge? And it is Worf, now this is at the end of Riker's big speech, so Riker's been building up to this point. And Worf shouts back, enough! Enough! And Riker backs off a little bit. Now that was cut from the script, which is why I'm mentioning it. I almost kind of wish it was in. Because, as Riker points out at the end there, despite their disagreement, he would still do it for his friend, out of love and respect for that man. But as he points out, it's not his task to do so. Because he looked into it. Of course he did. He cares about Worf. So he looked into it, and no, it's actually Alexander's call. Alexander's the one who should do it. Well, I'm not mentioning much in this episode, because he's mostly just kind of there. I've never really been a big fan of Alexander, and sometimes he's just kind of, eh. So, anyways... The very next scene is Alexander coming in, of course. You know, the typical bait-and-switch, and that's the moment where Worf says, yes, I'm going to fight. I've decided not to die. So, Picard convinces Crusher, and Riker convinces Worf. Now, I hope you paid attention to how I said that, because the pro-suicide convinces the anti-suicide, and the anti-suicide convinces the pro-suicide. And that is some nice balance, I'll admit it. As a consequence, they decide to meet in the middle and try this new experimental thing, which is where the episode just falls apart completely. Now, <clears throat> there's one good scene there. Actually, there's two, if I'm being completely honest. The one good scene I was mentioning is Picard is up in his ready room, and so is Riker, and they're both going through the business of the day in completely detached, barely paying attention tones. Yes, uh... It looks like the, the beam break is going for the thing. And then there's going to be a thing. 
to do this, and we're going to have to do this. Yes, yes, we will. And they're just going through the motions. It's a nice scene, because it helps to emphasize how both men really are concerned about the results of this. And you'll notice, and again, this is very Star Trek. And this one scene, forgive me for getting a little emotional here, but this right here is why I love this concept. Because we have one person who is on one side of a debate and the other person who is on the other side of the debate who both equally care. And they are both united despite their differences. And if I could be so bold, that is Star Trek in a nutshell. In my opinion. Infinite diversity in infinite complexity. For, for you geeks out there who get that. But then there's a fruit fly on my thing, which I kill. Sorry about that. But then the, the episode dies, just like that fruit fly. Like, that was the episode right there. Because then Worf dies. And everyone in the world watching that, who is, who is older than five, is going, ugh, okay. And then Worf just kind of gets back up. Now, what's funny is way at the beginning of the episode, they actually lay that little Chekhov's gun there. It's actually the first, uh, excuse me, second scene between Crusher and Russell is them talking about the redundant systems. And Worf just gets back up. Everything is wrong with this. Everything. So let's just start going down the list, shall we? First of all, he never should have died. The episode ends with him barely struggling to walk. As in, the surgery was successful, but obviously it's not just magically better. Instead, he is still recovering, which is correct and proper and awesome. That's exactly how that should be. Consequences, right? So the death was utterly unnecessary. It doesn't add to that or take away from that. It's just kind of, well, actually, it does take away from that. But it's just, it's just unnecessary, to put it as nicely as I can. Par problem two. While Worf has died, uh, Crusher starts going a little bit crazy in her efforts to resuscitate him including putting stuff into him that, and I quote, that'll kill him. Apparently none of that did anything to actually kill him, because he was able to get back up just fine without any real side effects. Third problem, why does it take so long? I mean, it doesn't take that long. It's only a space of a few minutes. But that is a... I mean, I want you to picture going without, you know, blood or breathing for a few minutes. And just, just process that for a second. Just, just think about what that would do to your body. I know, we're not Klingons. <sighs> uh, let's see, next problem is the fact that this basically never comes up again, with one notable exception. Uh, the next problem is that, once again, I feel that this lacks any substantial consequence past this episode. I know that you guys... I've had many comments from people who basically told me that I'm a moron. For, for wanting season-long story arcs, for wanting consequence from episode from episode, for wanting things to still matter after the credits. I've had many people calling me stupid for that. That's not an insult, and I'm not trying to call anyone out. I'm not even defending myself, because all their reasons are valid. In reality land, the things I want wouldn't really happen without severe amounts of backing from someone who is unconnected from the system, right? Now, nowadays, that kind of storytelling could happen, but back in the 80s and 90s, that's not happening. At least not in TNG. Not with how much they were locking that down at this point in history. So it's understandable why people would call me stupid for that. But I do have to keep pointing out that this would be a great time 
for Worf's inability to function properly or stand properly, and having issues with that, to have consequences past the credits. You know what else would be nice to have consequences past the credits? His interactions with Troy. Now this is interesting, because I decided to look into this one. Now I'll be paying attention over the next... God, like 30 episodes, 40 episodes? It's going to be a while. In the episode Parallels, which is going to be a while from now, uh, we find out that in one of the parallel timelines, spoilers, uh, Worf and Troy ended up romantically connected to each other after this episode. Specifically because of the scene that I never mentioned. You probably were wondering why I didn't bring it up. Because there is a scene between Worf and Troy in this episode. And it's actually a really good scene. It is a surprisingly good scene. In which he flat out states, You are the only woman I could think to help raise my child. Now picture what that means for a second. Really picture how much that means to state say, say that and admit that. Acknowledge that. You know, blah, 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 blah. Think about that for a second. Now, having said that, you can kind of see where that would develop, logically speaking. Now, obviously, it didn't develop, and then it did develop, and then it undeveloped, it, whatever. Season 7, right? But that being stated, this would be a perfect time to show the two getting closer together, at least as friends, and having more connections with each other up until Parallax happens. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Laura, why are you bringing this up? Well, I looked into the behind-the-scenes of Parallax, and at least I hope it's called Parallax. I don't think it's called Parallax. It's Parallel, excuse me. I looked into the behind-the-scenes of Parallels. Sorry, Parallax is a Green Lantern thing. I looked into the behind-the-scenes of Parallels, and lo and behold, the writers, all the way back in Season 5, in this episode, actually were trying to push Worf and Troy together. Really. Now, obviously, that wouldn't actually happen until much later, but I'm gonna, like I said, I'm going to be paying attention as we go forward to see how much that ended up actually happening on camera. Because TNG had an unfortunate habit of, of laying the groundwork for something and then ignoring it, and then all of a sudden picking it up as if it was never there. Voyager had the same problem, too. Regardless, I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this totally not controversial episode. I'll see you next time, guys.